Good morning, church. Yeah, thanks, Dad. Above all things, God gave me the power this last week to endure 17 four- and five-year-olds for four, five consecutive evenings. I mean, I mean, woo! Jesse stole all my thunder. I had all these girls. I was going to welcome the Solid Rock people, the Snowbirds. I was going to talk about Lisa's pregnancy, you know, her having a daughter. Now I got nothing. What? (laughs) Let's pray. What hot weather we're having. Um, We, uh... We've been doing this, this series called This Is Our God, the last, I believe this is our fourth Sunday in this series. Uh, we'll have uh, four more to come, um, then we'll be going into a series in 1 John. Um, we've learned, these last month, we've learned about the names of God. We've learned about the fact that God revealed himself to us and how he did that and what that means for us. We've looked at the personality of God, that God is a person like we are. In fact, we are made in his image. We then looked at the greatness of God and how much bigger and and greater and more powerful he is than anything else in the known universe. And this week we're going to study, it's start a two-part look at the goodness of God. Um, We said that the greatest thing about God is that in his greatness he is also good and he is good to us. Um, What we're going to be doing as we look through this, uh, this week I'm going to be looking at the goodness of God within himself, primarily his holiness and his love and what that looks like um, for God. And then next week, Pastor Larry is going to walk us through um, what God's goodness looks like to us, to mankind, as seen in his righteousness and in his faithfulness and in his mercy. But today, if we're going to start out by saying God is good, we want to ask the question, well, well what is good? Um, and, and what does that mean? Now, there's a lot of disagreement over what is good in this world, um, from the most superficial things to the deepest things. Take, for example, the ever-controversial subject of Miracle Whip. I think Miracle Whip is fantastic. Uh, I think it's flavorful. I think it's delicious. It makes good hamburgers better. Some people think it's disgusting. Okay? They're not welcome in this church, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> So who decides? Like, what's the standard? I think Miracle Whip is, is good. Jacob thinks it's not good. Who's right? Who's wrong? How do we decide? Is all truth relative? How about you take the hot weather, okay? We know we've been experiencing the most extreme. It's supposed to be in the low 80s this week is what I hear. Like, what in the world? Now, for some of us, we say, that's awesome. I love hot weather. Some of us spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to places where there's hot weather. Some of us, like me, um, I, I resonate with this guy right here. I'm miserable. Yesterday, the only reason I was able to be outside is if I was in the water. Um, if we get too much hot weather, we'll experience droughts and famine. Not enough hot weather, and we could have an ice age. So is hot weather good? Is, is it bad? How about one of the most polarizing things on planet Earth? Boy bands. Um, (laughs) Thousands of screaming girls across the country would like to tell you that boy bands are very, very good. And if they were close enough just to catch some of the sweat off of their body, they would lose their minds. There are other people who say, I would rather have a root canal than listen to these guys and what they have to offer us on stage. Especially these, do you realize they're wearing Christmas lights? I just wanted to point that out. That is good, and that's not negotiable. Then you get into some more serious subjects like, like politics, okay? Is our president good 
Or is he not good? Well, it depends on who you're asking. It depends on somebody's agenda, somebody's belief system, controversial subjects like gay marriage, abortion. Um, There's lots of things in our world that we're clearly not decided on as to whether or not those things are good. So who gets to decide what is good and what is not good? Well, the psalmist tells us this in talking about God. He says, you are good and do only good. We know this popular phrase. You've learned that God is good for, as, since you were a child. If I say, you finish this phrase, God is good all the time and... Very good, my little parrots. So we, we know this. We've, we've learned this from a, a young age. And what we're saying here is that Scripture consistently uses the word good to describe both God's nature and his actions. As the psalmist says, you are good. Who you are, your person, your character is good. And everything that you do, your actions, your works are also good. And, and every time at the end of each day of creation, God made something. He said he called it good. And when he made man, he called it very good. But what do we mean by the word good? Have you ever thought about that? Like, how would you define good? When, when we use that term, what are we saying? Um, the dictionary, the English dictionary, says that good means correct, means proper, suitable, high quality, right, or satisfactory. Maybe a way to say it is when something is good, it's as it should be. It's as it should be then who gets to decide how it should be? And for many people in our world, in a world of, of pain and suffering, there are many who say, there's no way God can be good. This is not the way the world should be. So what defines good? I think a lot of it depends on your point of reference. What, what is your standard? For some people, it's the self-perspective. To define good, goodness is determined by how it impacts me. If it makes me happy... If it makes me content, then it's good. I like that ice cream. It is enjoyable to eat it because it's tasty in my belly, and therefore it's good. And when we say you are good, we'll say another person's good because you helped me move this weekend. You made me laugh. I liked the way you made me feel about myself. You treated me well, and outside of you, good and evil is just kind of irrelevant. It's all directed on you. For some people, it's the time perspective. It's the kind of the, the idea that if it pleases me now, then it's good. We would call this immediate gratification. I think the ice cream is good in my belly because of how it makes me feel now, regardless of the consequences of overeating ice cream down the road. And finally, and this would probably be one that, um, that m- more commonly would be agreed upon, the moral perspective. That goodness is determined by niceness, or not hurting someone. You've heard, ah, oh, he's such a, such a good guy. Why is he a good guy? Well, did you see him help that old lady across the street? Like, you see how he, he spends so much of his time, you know, thinking about other people and giving his time to charity. He's a, he's a good guy that, that we'd say you don't hurt other people. You don't hurt their feelings. You don't hurt their self-esteem, that you're always positive, complimenting, and, and this is kind of the idea of goodness. There's so many different ways you could go with this, equate it with generosity or loyalty or humility. But at the end of the day, our source, if you are a believer in, in our God, then you know that our source of authority on all things, including what is good, is the Bible. So what does the Bible say is the standard of good? How do we know what's good and, and what's not good? Well, what we see through the whole of Scripture is that God himself is the standard of what is good. 
God himself, his person and his works, is the standard. He is also the definition of what is good. In other words, if something is different, if it is not like God, then it is not good. And if it, if it is like God, then it is good. Now, I remember when I was a teenager, um, I went to a youth conference uh, in the States. You guys have been, some of you guys are, are up here uh, for the summer with us. Some of you guys um, just go down and, and go on vacations. You've got some of the ridiculous questions before from Alaska. You know, do you have a pet penguin? You know, do you guys really live in igloos? You know, do you, is, is the sun up for like, I heard it's like years at a time, right? Like, is, is it always cold there? But the one, the question I got at this youth conference that I will never forget this girl came up to me, hearing I was from Alaska. She said, how can you live so far away? How can you live so far away? And I said, far away from what? From you? Like, why are you the center of the universe? Like, why don't, how about you live far away from me? Like, how can you live so far, punk? Like, you know, like, who do you think you are? Like, I got, you know, we got, yeah. So, anyway. Um, but what we, we do this all the time. Like, we have the audacity to believe that we are the center of the moral universe. And that, that if, if something disagrees with our definition of good, then it's far away from what is good. And if God differs from what we think is good, then God is wrong. That takes some nerve. That takes some nerve. If our definition of good differs from God's, then we're the ones living in Alaska. We're the ones that need corrected. You see, whatever God approves is what is good. Whatever God therefore disapproves is bad. God is good because he says he's good, and it's, it's not up for a vote. Like, we don't get to decide on this. Romans 3 says, um, it says, let, every, let God be true and every human being a liar. God, whatever God does and says and is is what is right and true and good. And anything that varies from that is, is the thing that is askance. It's the thing that is incorrect. It's the thing that is evil. It's the thing that is bad. It's the thing that is wrong. So our quest this morning, it begins by understanding that God is the standard, that God is the definition of what is good. So what does this goodness look like? How does it flesh itself out? Two ways. First of all, well, many more ways than two. Two ways that we're going to look at this morning. First of all, God is holy. If many of you, if you're a good Christian, you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, um, and uh, he, uh, that's tongue-in-cheek if you're not normal with us here, um, if you know, you remember Reepicheep. He's this, he's this little character from, from the Chronicles of, of Narnia. He's this valiant little mouse. This little, he's got his little sword, but he's not afraid to take on people ten times his size. And, and Reepicheep, in, in, the, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, this brave little mouse, he has one passion. He is singly focused in mind as to what he wants to do. And they're taking this voyage to the end of the earth where he wants to go to Aslan's country where he can live with Aslan himself. Aslan, if you're not familiar with the book, he is the equivalent of of God um, in the stories. And so 
little Reaper Cheap, he has this quote in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and he says this, While I can, I sail east in the Dawn Treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. It's a little boat. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Ribuchip wanted one thing, and that was to be in the presence of his maker. John Piper was talking about this little story, and, and the illustration that he used is when we take the word holy, the word holy is like that little boat that we can no longer sail on the ship. We get into the smaller boat that takes us as far as we can. The, the word holy is this little boat to which we arrive at the world's end in an ocean of language. At some point, the ability to communicate God through words runs out. And we spill over into a vast void. And holiness carries us to the edge. It's as far as we can go in words about God. From there, the ability to experience God is, is beyond words. And, and here's the, the reason of this is if you try to define God's holiness... What you, what you end up saying is that God is God. If you, if you try to say God is holy, to say God is holy ultimately is simply to say that God is God. And, and here's, here's why I say that. The word holiness, it means separate or set apart, okay? So the idea is that you set something apart from what is common and sinful, and you set it apart unto God, devoted to him. And all through scripture, we see many, many things that are, are called holy because of them being set apart. We look at, we see holy ground, holy assemblies of people, holy days, like the Sabbath, holy garments, holy cities, holy promises, holy men, and holy women, we're here of quality, holy scriptures, holy hands, holy kiss, holy faith, and of course, holy wrath. Capture, Batman. Everything that's holy is what's separated from what's common unto God. Well, then using that definition, what do you separate from God to make him holy? In other words, how can you separate God unto God? Like he already is God. And the very godness of God means that he is separate from everything that's not God. Does that hurt? The, the, the phrase, the Latin phrase, sui generis, it means one of a kind. And, and what it's saying is that when, when applied to God, that he's in a class all by himself. He is utterly, perfectly, completely holy and uniquely different than everything else in the universe. But when you've said this, when you've said this about the holiness of God, all you've really said is nothing more than that he is God. God can't be more devoted to God than being God. God is the absolute reality beyond which is only more of himself. And his holiness is, oops, not determined by anything else. Think of it this way. God is not holy because he keeps the rules. It's not like, well, God, he, he followed all of the law and therefore he attained holiness. No, the, 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 the rules themselves are holy because they reveal God. Everything else in the world, the universe, derives itself from God. So, so then what are we saying when we say that God is holy? Well, three texts to help. First Samuel 2, it says this. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you 
There is no rock like our God. So number one, God is the only person, the only thing in the universe that in himself is holy. If anything else is to be holy, it's because it derives from God. God is the only one who has the essence, the divine essence of holiness in himself. Isaiah 40. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. It's not like God is a hundred holy and we can get to like 99 holy or 95 or, or 50 holy and some things are just lesser degrees of holiness. It's that God is unable to be compared with anything else in his holiness. Holiness is, is all or nothing thing. It's a hundred or zero. You're not kind of holy. And finally, Hosea 11, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. In the end, God is holy in that he is God and he is not man. He's God and he is not creation. He's incomparable. He's God. And God's holiness, it determines every single thing that he does and that he is. Stems from his holiness. In the end, language runs out, and in the world, in the word holy, we sail to the edge of the world like reap a cheap, and there is nothing more but utter silence and reverence and awe for our God. And there, there may be, and in fact, there is more to know about God, but that's beyond words, and it's not on this side of glory. Or to say it differently, some theologians have argued that that God's holiness is central to everything that he does. You kind of look at this diagram and you see here in the middle God's holiness and then everything else in his character and who he is kind of ripples out from that. Um, In other words, God is not holy because he loves. Like, oh, I love people and then that made me holy. No, God loves because he is holy. God is faithful because he is holy. Holy. Everything that God is and that he does emanates from this central characteristic, namely his holiness. And, and this is why, by definition, God must be set apart from everything that's not holy. If you're not holy, which is the sum of human creation, then you cannot be in, in the presence of holiness because, by definition, holiness is set apart from everything that's unholy. And so, therefore, God cannot dwell with us as unholy sinners and, by nature, We cannot be in his presence, and that's why we have a hell. But we know that's not the end of the story, and that's why ultimately God's goal, and we need to understand this, this is going to answer a lot of questions in our lives. God's ultimate purpose in your life, in my life, is not happiness. It's not, it's not comfort, it's not entertainment, it's not easy street, it's not just to give you all the pleasures you want. God's purpose is not happiness it's holiness. That's what God wants from us. That's the process of discipleship. It's not to just get all the comforts that he can give us. It's to look like Jesus. And don't just take my word for it. Romans 8 says this, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them. Why? For what purpose? To become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers And sisters, God's purpose in your life is that you would reflect the image of Jesus. His goal was not just to save you from hell. Something much bigger and more beautiful than that. It's to become holy as he is holy because that's the only way that we can exist in the presence of God. Because by definition, 
God being God is God being holy. Which leads us to the other characteristic of God's goodness that we're going to look at today. The second characteristic is how he made it possible for unholy people to be holy in his presence. And that is to speak of the love of God. Has anyone here ever said or thought the following phrase? It doesn't feel like God loves me. It doesn't feel like God loves me. Like, man, especially if you've grown up in the church, you're like, I know the verses, I've sang the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, I've I've grown up with it, I, I understand that that's the fact, but like, here's the reality, I don't feel it. Like, in my daily walk, in my experience, like, it doesn't line up for me. Like, I don't, I don't feel, it doesn't feel, all, all the things that I've encountered this week, this year, in my lifetime, it doesn't equate with a God who would love me. And just as easy as it is to doubt God's goodness in, in, the, in a world of pain and suffering, is it easy to doubt that God loves us. It's the fundamental lie that Satan tries to tell us, especially when we've seen so much non-love in the world. Seen, we, we've been burnt by so many people in so many situations. But this agape love, God's love, is not, and hear me on this, please hear me, it is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. The love that God has for us is not just the warm fuzzies. Anybody who's been married much past their honeymoon knows this, that the love that sustains you through years of marriage is not the warm Fuzzies. Now, maybe we have some newlyweds in here. Like, don't listen to them, baby. Like, I got you. You know, they don't know us. The fuzzies will do it for us, you know. Good luck. Um, and any parent, any parent understands this intuitively with their kids. There are many times when you do not feel the warm fuzzies for your children. Like, they make you want to scream and do things that are illegal in many states, Right? <laughs> But in that same instant that you're infuriated with them, like if anybody tried to harm them, you're like, oh, I'd kill them. Like, I would just kill them. I would just take them out. Like, that's my kid. I love them, right? Don't mess with my kid. Because you understand that loving my kid doesn't mean just having this euphoric feeling for them at all times. That, that love is something much more substantial than the warm fuzzies. So what is love? And what does it mean that God is love? If he, if, if, his, if he is love, we need to know what, what this is. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this. He said, you want to see the pinnacle of love? It's not the warm fuzzies. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. You want to see God's love? While we were still sinners, or we were still very unholy, Christ died for us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is is nowhere in this to say God demonstrated his love like this, just that he just sends us these warm vibes, is in that he gave, that he died, that he sent. You see, God's love is a love you can see. 
It's an action. DC Talk said love is a verb, right? It's an unselfish, voluntary, perfect, everlasting act. As we sang earlier, on display for all to see. So we want to look at, kind of as we park this thing, um, the last things we want to look at here is, first of all, what God's love means for God, and then what God's love means for us. The love of God finds its satisfaction in the following things, and this is, this is so beautiful. God's love finds its satisfaction. It is satisfied. It finds what it's looking for in, in these things. First of all, the welfare of his beloved that God loved the world so much that he gave his one son to die for us. Why? So that we wouldn't perish, but that we could live with him forever. God's love is satisfied in our well-being. Praise God that he, that he wants the best for us, that his love is satisfied in, in our welfare. Number two, it's satisfied in the presence of of the beloved. A beautiful verse in Revelation 21. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. God's love is satisfied to be with those that he gave his son to die for. And then finally, God's love is satisfied in the delight in his beloved. And there's not a more beautiful verse in all of scripture than, than Zephaniah 3.17. It says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Do you hear what he just said? He said, God sees you and he's doing backflips. Like God sees you down on earth and he gets so pumped up like as he watches his creation, he's like, I love this person so much. He says like a Disney movie, he just breaks into spontaneous song. Like he just sees you and he's like, there is Justin waddling around the stage. He's got a bald head and khaki pants. Like, that was a bad spontaneous song. But, the, but he sees us and he just starts singing. Like he, he loves, he delights in us so much. Like his love won back this reconciled relationship so that now that we can see him and he looks at us and he just starts busting out in song. And as a believer, do you ever have trouble with your behavior? Like, do you ever have times where you resonate with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 where he says, man, the things that I want to do, that I know I should do, that God's called me to do, I can't do them. And the things that I know are bad, the things that I know I should not be doing, I keep doing those things. Why? Why does my behavior not line up with my desires and God's desires? Let me encourage you to start with this verse. Start right here in Zephaniah 3. Because most Christians, at a deep, or many Christians, I should say, at a deep, emotional, foundational level, do not really believe that God loves them. Do not really believe that God is in their corner, that God has accepted them, that God is committed to them through thick and thin, and that God delights in what he sees, based not on your merit, but based on the one who hung on the cross in your place. 
And you see, it's only when we know this. It's only when we operate from this foundation. We have to be able to stand, to walk. And it's only when we have this secure foundation that we can move forward and be productive. This is the only way that we're going to be able to see any kind of behavioral change in our lives because it stems from a heart change. This is the difference between law and grace. Law says, do it and I'll accept you. Grace says, I accept you based on my son, and now do it in my grace. It's the difference of sitting in a classroom with a teacher who genuinely loves you, who is in your corner, who delights in seeing your growth, and a teacher who's just there marking time, who's just there because they want to control you and get paid and just kind of go through the motions. And we've, we, we've all in this room sat between uh, both kinds, and, and we know the difference. And God is a God who delights in us and sings over us. God's love finds its expression in three things. First of all, it finds it shows itself, is what we're saying here. This is how God's love shows itself to us. Number one, in the giving of himself for the objects of his love. We're going back to John 3, 16 one more time. We can see God's love in that he gave his most precious possession for our welfare. Number two, he expresses himself in the suffering with and for the objects of his love. Isaiah 63 says, In all their suffering, he also suffered. And he personally rescued them. There is no trial, there is no suffering that we experience in our life that Jesus cannot empathize with. That Jesus, the, that Jesus has not walked down that road as well. And he expresses his love to us in being able to be our sympathetic high priest and to be able to genuinely look us in our eyes and say, I understand what you're going through. Not only does he suffer with us, but he suffered for us. By his wounds, we are healed. And finally, God's love expresses itself in the disciplining of the objects of his love. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, says the writer of Hebrews. And don't give up when he corrects you. Why? For the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes each one he accepts as his child. You see what he says here? He says, when God puts you over his knee, when, when God disciplines you, when you, when you experience trial and, and suffering in your life, and we're not here to, to split the hairs of why God does the things he does, but, but when he disciplines, he says it's not because he doesn't like you. It's not because he's sick and tired of you. Quite the contrary, he does it precisely because he loves you. Have you ever been to Walmart, and you see these crazy little kids running around doing whatever they want, and you know the parent over there looks completely indifferent? You're like, man, that parent just loves their child so much. Like, it's so neat to see them giving them the freedom of expression, you know? Like, no, like, what in the world? Take him out of the car and spank him, right? Like, says the single bachelor. Um, but, but no, you, you discipline your child because you love your child and because you've been mandated in Scripture to train them up in the way they should go. There's a goal in mind, and they're not just going to be born and become a holy little human all by themselves. It requires discipline. And when God loves us, he disciplines us because, again, and this is verse 10. This is amazing. This sums up the three things that we've been talking about this morning, his goodness, his love, and his holiness. He says, but God's discipline is always good for us. See, God disciplines because he loves. He loves because he's, he's good. And here's, here's the end goal. Here's why that discipline is good. So that we might share in his holiness. 
This is why God disciplines us, because he's not concerned primarily about our happiness. He's concerned about something much deeper and more satisfying, our holiness, that we would look like God. There's no place of greater joy than to reflect the image of Christ. And then finally, what does God's love therefore mean for us? And this is where we'll end. Number one, God's love prompts the same response in his children toward God and others. First John 5. Everyone who believes, hear this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. Okay? So it's talking about believers. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. Did you catch that? Everyone who loves the Father also loves God's children, the church. How many times have you heard, I love God, eh, not so much on his church. I love Jesus, can't stand those hypocrites. Love, love God, don't love his people. That's not the gospel. That is not what we are called to as believers. If you love him, you will love the church. Number two, God's love prompting love in his people becomes evidence of one's salvation. We're going to actually walk through 1 John. I'm excited about it. That's what we're going to do after this study in, um, on God. There's some very assuring, but also some very convicting and difficult passages. This is one of them. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. So if you are a child of God and you know him, you will love implying that if you do not love, you're not a child of God, and you do not know God. Now, it's important to see that first sentence that says, love comes from God, and I picture myself like a cup, and God pours his love over abundance in my life, and it spills out of my cup into the lives of others. I'm not loving people on my own strength. I'm loving people with the overflow, which, which God loves me. But if there's no overflow, if God's not pouring his love into me, then there's no overflow. So if I'm not loving other people, that means that I don't know God. And then finally, God's love prompting his love and his people is preparing them for the day of judgment. God's coming back, and Jesus is going to judge according to what we've done in the flesh. As we live in God, our, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. God is a God of love. Jesus is a God of love. And if we are of him, we too will love. And the next verse says, perfect love casts out what? It casts out fear. There's no fear in love. And if we know him and we are full of his love and loving other people, when he comes back, we're going to long for that day. If we are not loving and if we are not full with his love, then we're going to run and hide. God's love prepares us for the day when he comes back. So if you're in this room this morning, and, and you, you're doubting God's love, let me first say to you that you're a human being, and you're very normal, and we all have our doubts, where there's no room for doubt, there's no room for fear, or there's no room for faith. But what I encourage you to do is not look for the feeling. Like, man, I, I listened to this song one time, and God was there, and it felt awesome. Now I'm going to go back and listen to that song, but this time the awesome fuzzies aren't there. Like, God, where are you? Don't base the foundation of God's love for you on a feeling. If you're doubting God's love, what I encourage you to do is look back 2,000 years ago when Jesus, bloodied and battered, hung on a cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. Greater love has no man than this. And he laid his life down for you and for me. Father, 
we come to you this morning um, confessing that there are many times that we don't believe that you're good. We have a lot of questions, very legitimate questions, about the pain and suffering of people, of friends, of family in our lives. And we look around in this world, and it's easy to see things that would not line up with a God that's good, or at least not a God that's powerful enough to do something about the things that he sees. And Father, therefore, we can doubt the very essence of your holiness, and we can doubt whether or not you love us, whether or not you're in our corner, whether or not you, you care. Father, may we base our relationship with you on the facts of Scripture and, and not, not the feelings of our heart, because they are far too fickle. And Father, those feelings of joy and peace, you tell us that those, those will come. You'll give us a peace that passes all understanding. But the foundation of that joy, the foundation of that peace is, is, is the fact that Jesus died for us and that we live with him. Father, may we hold on to those facts. May we encourage each other as iron sharpens iron that we would be a people that drive each other back to the word back to these foundational truths that we need to stand on if we're going to do anything that you've called us to do. May we be a people that know that you love us, that are in awe of your holiness, and believe that you're good to us. You are good. We are not. We love your Son for making us good in your sight, and therefore it is in his name alone that we can pray to you. Amen.